As I said, we're starting this new series, Christians in Politics, and um, some of you might be wondering, rightfully so, if Christians in Politics can or should even go together, because all of us can think of at least one or many situations or examples of times when a Christian or maybe a group of Christians uh, should not really have gotten involved in politics at all. Maybe they endorsed a candidate or, or they basically equated voting for a certain candidate as you're going to hell if you do that. Uh, whatever the case, we can all think of those kind of situations probably. But on the other hand, on sort of the opposite perspective of that or a different perspective of that, in this day and age, it's almost impossible. Have you ever thought about this? It's almost impossible to not be political. Um, everything is political now. Everything is political. Uh, if you say A, that's political. If you say B, that is also political. If you don't say something, that is political. If you don't say something soon enough, that is considered political. So we can obviously think of bad examples of Christians getting involved in politics when they shouldn't have. Um, it could sort of lead us to the natural conclusion, well, maybe Christians shouldn't get involved in politics, and that's just sort of a thing. Um, but we also know this other side of, well, you can't really necessarily avoid politics either because everything is political, and so it's not necessarily a possibility to even avoid politics either. But I would also suggest that beyond just those things, um, if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to be followers of his, and we're supposed to live out our faith in, in every area of our life, in every possible arena of our life, then we have to learn how to figure this whole political thing out. And the good news is that we don't have to figure it out on our own. We don't have to learn about this, how to do it on our own. Uh, in fact, Jesus modeled for us a way forward, and not just with politics, but in general, he modeled the way forward for us. And, and this is for us that sort of how to relate to, how to deal with, how to, how to process a different group of people that has a completely different political system or view than you do, and different views of the world. And the writers of the New Testament would then take sort of Jesus' approach to how we deal with different people and how we deal, deal with people in general, and they would sort of give some specific examples of how Jesus would have lived this out and how his teaching would actually look like in a real life situation. And that, we, and that while we sort of get this freedom, and we all take this freedom for granted a lot, but we get this freedom to choose whether to follow Jesus or to choose not to follow Jesus. And while we have that sort of freedom, we don't get to choose what it looks like to actually follow Jesus. Jesus has sort of modeled this for us. He's given us teaching. The writers of the New Testament give us all these examples of what does it actually look like to follow Jesus. So we don't have a choice when it comes to what it looks like to follow Jesus. That Jesus demonstrated a posture, a tone, and an approach for how to treat people. And we really have to take our cues from what Jesus actually did and actually how he lived our, our lives. That we can't call ourselves Jesus followers and use whatever posture, whatever tone, whatever approach we want to use about how we treat people, or how, how it comes to our politics and how we view politics. And now what we're going to talk about is, is really geared towards those of us who are following Jesus, but I would suggest this is a healthy approach for anybody, whether you're following Jesus or not, what we're going to talk about today. Now, um, this next statement that I'm going to make, I'll be very clear, this is just my opinion. <laughs> this is not from Scripture. Uh, I think there's some, some support from Scripture to sort of validate this, but I'll, let me just say this. For Christians, again, just talking to Christians as our sort of, uh, sort of emphasis of what we're supposed to do, and we're supposed to follow Jesus. Everything that went wrong with the 2020 election cycle involved our posture, our tone, and our approach looking nothing like Jesus. Now, there's a lot of things you can identify wrong with the 2020 election cycle, right? There's so many different things you can pinpoint and say these were terrible things, and, and, and there's so many things to pinpoint. But in general, as far as how Christians are viewed because of that political cycle, that election cycle, 
So much of it revolved around our terrible posture, our terrible tone, and our terrible approach that really had nothing to do with Jesus. And all the moments where we could critique Christians and how we viewed and how we dealt with the election, so many of, so many of those things go back to our posture and our tone and our approach. And really, I think we could sort of broaden that statement out a little bit wider to you could say the 2016 election cycle, the 2012 election cycle, most almost any election cycle, you could go back and say Christians didn't behave very well because of these specific things. And you could even probably go even further, which is what we're at right now, those midterm elections between the presidential elections, all these different things. You could go all the way to primaries. You could go to any involvement in Christians and, and the political system. Usually our, our failures revolve around our posture, our tone, and our approach to how we deal with those things. And so as Christians, I don't think we've um, sort of brought Jesus' tone and his posture uh, and his approach to our, our politics and how we actually view those things. Um, uh, let's see. And, and the reason I say that we, um, this is sort of an interesting thing that, that the, the church has a little bit of a unique uh, standing on, that when I say we, we, this is us as Jesus followers, us as Christians, we are together. Because Jesus said that we are his body, one body, not many bodies, not different bodies, one body. We all have different functions. Some of us are arms, some of us are legs, some of us are head, eyes, eyebrows, I don't know, whatever the different parts are. We are different parts within one body, but we are still one body. And so we have sort of have to take some responsibility for this. We have to take some responsibility for how the world, how the political establishment, but also how the world in general looks at us, partly because of our politics. We have to take some responsibility for why we aren't looked, uh, looked upon very well in the world. And the interesting thing is that if you took something from me, I would not have just your hand arrested, though your hand was what probably took something from me. I would have all of you arrested, your whole body arrested. I would get the authorities and say, you need to arrest this person, this, this body, because they did something wrong. And so that sort of indicates we also understand that. We can't just say, well, it's their problem. It's that portion of the church. It's that portion of Christianity that's the problem. And so we're just going to like alienate them and look down upon them and shun them and whatever else kind of things we could do. That we have to own this for ourselves, because if we're honest, we can look in the mirror and see that that thing that the other group of Christians did we've probably done as well. And so this isn't just something to say they did that and they shouldn't have done this and all those things. It's to sort of look inwardly at ourselves and say, well, what did we do to contribute to that situation? What did we contribute to that environment, even if we might not have done one of those things, whatever it was? Um, so to be very clear, this series will not, I mean, emphasize not, be like a voter guide for how Christians should vote in this midterm election. And as long as I'm the pastor, that will probably never happen. And many of you would not let that happen, and that's great. Um, so it's not going to be a voter guide, like which politicians should you vote for, which measure should you vote for. That's not our role, as we're going to see today and a little bit more throughout the series. That's not our role as Christians, to sort of give you the guide of what you're supposed to vote for. What this is hopefully going to be is a guide for how to navigate these sort of turbulent, stressful, strange election cycles that we're going to go through. And dealing with people who have very different views than us. And hopefully you have people in your life, and hopefully we have people in our church that have different views on these political issues and these politicians than maybe what we do. We don't all have to have the same view of many of these 
things. So um, if you're looking for something in this series to sort of give you sort of a hidden message about what I'm trying to say, like you notice this slide right now is mostly blue. Well, guess what next week? It's going to be mostly red with a little bit of blue. I'm not giving any hidden messages. I'm not giving any explicit messages about what you should vote for or who you should vote for or anything like that. In fact, this is actually why I'm wearing a green shirt today. I didn't want anybody to think like, oh, his shirt's blue or his shirt's red or like we're just, I'm going to try to avoid blue and red shirts or maybe the next week I'll just wear the opposite, whatever, because I don't have a whole lot of shirts but that are not blue or red. But um, the point is that I'm not making these sort of uh, hidden references or hidden um, agendas here. That's not, the, that's not the case. And so hopefully this is a guide, again, for how to navigate all these strange situations. Now, let's just be honest. The election cycle is so, so strange. There's a lot of other adjectives you could use to describe the election cycle, but it's just really strange, and it can cause so much division and so much problem in our lives. Um, so uh, back to what I said a, a few minutes ago, through the recent, recent elections, um, in some ways we have really confirmed, uh, we've sort of confirmed what, what younger generations thought about the church. And unfortunately, what we've sort of done in, the, in, in these last recent elections, we've sort of validated what people thought and they suspected about Christians, that we really aren't that different from the rest of the world, that we aren't actually all that different because we value and we prioritize some of the same exact things that they prioritize and they value. And really we say that we're different, but in some ways we're actually not. And sometimes the, the big focus is on a, a hidden agenda, like I just sort of referenced, that, the, that Christians sort of have this hidden agenda and so they're out to do these things, but really the reason that they're doing these things is sort of a secret hidden agenda that they, they, they're trying to do something that, that they're trying to hide a little bit. And really this last election cycle, but again, I'd say even previous election cycles have sort of shown that um, there, there's, you know, beneath the, the Bible-laced rhetoric and behind all this Christianese and behind this, this uh, idea about Jesus as the sort of the central focus, um, there really has been exposed to be a hidden agenda, that Christians have had the same sort of agenda that, that non-Christians have, that people outside of the church have had. And it's kind of interesting because sometimes these same Christians in the political system claim that the other side has a hidden agenda, all the while they sometimes actually do have a hidden agenda. And people outside of the church suspect that we're just like everybody else outside of the church. And the same thing that drives them, they would say, is the same thing that seems to drive us. And unfortunately, their suspicion is confirmed too many times that Christians, what we really value is we value winning that we value winning over everything else. And apparently, uh, sort of the opposite of that, that we fear the same things as everybody else. We fear losing. We fear what every other ideology and a lot of the other religions and, and basically every other person in the world, we fear losing. We fear losing influence, losing our voice, and most importantly, unfortunately, we fear losing our rights. That we're not so much different than the rest of the world and different than the other political party or whatever the different view than you have. We tend to say that we prioritize winning and we don't want to lose. And unfortunately, whenever the church reduces itself and sort of stoops down low enough to the, the, the politics and the kingdoms of this world and the sort of the maneuvers and the, the, the movements of the kingdoms of this world and politics to sort of acquire power at, at any cost, to, to win at all costs, to, to have our way, and again, to protect our rights, when we stoop down to those kind of levels for politics, we just become like any other political party any other constituency, and really any other lobbying group. And we become sort of a lobbying group to try to gain the power, to gain the votes, to gain the, the things that we want that will meet our needs and what we think is best. And whenever a group of local churches or whenever a specific local church or a group of Christians is sort of loses the focus of what the mandate, what the instructions are from Jesus and what we're here for, 
it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense that the very thing that we're trying not to lose, we actually end up losing because we're trying to hold on to it. And Jesus would sort of speak on that a little bit. And we, see, we feel the need to sort of fight and maintain, to hold on to these things that we're trying not to lose. And yet, again, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We lose the very things that we're trying to fight for and think we need to maintain. That you and I are not here to win. That is not our purpose as Jesus followers. Now, there might be other people or other groups of people that believe that that is the purpose why they're here. But we as Jesus followers are not here to win. Yeah, there is sort of the idea of winning people for Jesus. And we're going to talk about that, actually. That's sort of an important thing. But we are not here to win culture wars. And we are not here especially to win any sort of election. Because if you think about it, elections are fairly new to history. That's not necessarily something that's been the case for previous generations. So how would other generations of Christians define winning if they couldn't win an election, which we sort of seem to sometimes focus on and prioritize? And, and unfortunately, one of the interesting things about this idea of winning people for Jesus, some people say, well, yeah, but we're for, about winning people for Jesus, which we are. But when we prioritize winning above all else, in many ways, politically, when we do that, we're alienating half of the country, right? Half of our audience we're alienating because we're saying our political party, our views, our stance is the right way, and we're prioritizing that at the expense of people who see it differently. And if that's true, if those people who see something differently are not right, let's say they don't know Jesus and they're not following God and they're far from him, wouldn't alienating the very people that are far from God be the exact opposite of what our mission is? Like if people on the right think that, yeah, our, our policies on the right are the exact right thing and, and like those people on the left are terrible, they're heathens, they don't want to follow God. Well, aren't you alienating the very people who you should be trying to reach with the message of Jesus? And, and it goes the other way too. Like people on the left, if they think, well, all those people on the right, they say they follow God, but they have no compassion, they have no concern for people. They're just, you know, they don't really follow God. Well, if that's true, wouldn't you be alienating the very people that you should be trying to reach? And Christians on both sides have sometimes alienated people, half the population, because they think that their side is right. Their political views are right. And we've abandoned what Jesus has actually called us to do and to be. And beyond that, the church in general these past few years, I would suggest, has probably missed, um, you know, we could maybe still redeem it and God can still redeem whatever. But these past few years, I think the church has missed an unprecedented opportunity to be an example, to be a light into, into this dark world. And we've sort of just chosen our political sides and our political corners, and we missed the opportunity that we had to potentially make a bigger impact in the world. And some of us have, um, in fact, prayed for opportunities, right? We've prayed for opportunities that, God, would you please give us an opportunity that the church could shine bright in the world and help pull people and, and win people in and, and draw people in to know you, and yet, we had an opportunity, maybe, through the pandemic, through the 2020 election cycle, through a lot of different things. And yet, unfortunately, the majority of Christians chose their political sides. And, and maybe some of us, in varying degrees, chose political sides at the expense of that opportunity that we might have had. And yet, the good news is that we sort of get these mini opportunities every two to four years when we have a new election cycle, a midterm election cycle, and we get more of them beyond that as well. And so... To make a difference in the people around us, I think there's a couple things that we're going to highlight today specifically, but then again sort of throughout this message, that we need to have a different posture, as I've mentioned. We need to have a different tone. We need to have a different approach than sort of the natural posture, tone, and approach of the political cycle and the political, uh, the political world. And so the first thing is that the natural political posture 
is to divide, right? That's, that's sort of the natural political posture is just to divide people. That, that politi- the, the po- politics and politicians specifically, their natural bent is to sort of divide people and to tell who's against us. And then by doing that, you can then tell who's with us, right? And so who's with us? Who's on our side? We need to sort of gather the troops. Who's on, who's on our side? We need to count the money, of course, of who's on our side. And we need to sort of divide people and say, that's the bad guy. We need to identify an enemy. And, and then we can move forward. The natural political tone then is typically about fear, right? Fear is the way you can generate a lot of money. It's, it's kind of hard to generate money necessarily sometimes, or it's, it's harder, I should say, to generate money on, on good things and not being afraid of things, that fear can generate a lot of money and it can sort of move people towards where you want them to go. And this is sort of a little bit of a similar direction to the dividing thing, right? It's very similar, uh, but dividing, uh, but rather fear seeks to use the potential harm as a sort of motivation to, to live a certain way, to vote a certain way, to, to fund a particular movement or candidate or a party. Uh, also, the natural political approach then is also to win at all costs. That you can't lose. Again, we can't lose because that would be bad. Uh, we just have to prioritize winning at all costs. And, and we're going to talk a little bit more at that about that next week. Um, but this is maybe not so much heightened in America as we might think, but it is seem to be heightened in America um, that, that losing is just not an option, that we value winning in everything. We are a very competitive culture. We're a very competitive nation. And we just sort of value winning at all costs. That losing, in some ways, we say, will sort of bring about the end of the world. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. How many times has a candidate said that losing will bring about sort of the end of the world And yet, (laughs) there's another election. We're here again, and it didn't lead to that, right? It doesn't typically lead to the end of the world, no matter what happens. And there's a reason for that, as we're going to see in a little bit. And so hopefully, um, we we sort of see it becomes obvious that those are not good, right? All those sort of natural political tendencies are not good. And so what is the opposite? What is the the, uh, different approach that we could take to doing that? And again, Jesus paves the way for us, and his followers paved the way for how we should actually handle this. So we're going to start reading in John chapter 17. If you want to follow along the Bible app, you're welcome to do that. Um, We don't actually have the notes in the Bible app, but we do have the the verses there you can follow along. We'll have the notes and verses on the screen as well. So um, first, we're going to look at that first one. The natural political posture is to divide. And sadly, this is the, the arguably the most uh, important thing or the most significant thing that Jesus would talk about. And he was so concerned about this is a dangerous aspect of, of, um, for his followers that he actually prayed a prayer addressing this specific danger um, for his people. And he prayed a prayer that's actually for us, and it was for his early followers as well, but it's for us. And in this prayer, he asked, he asked his father to do something in us that is so incredibly powerful and so contrary through this polarized and divided political environment that we find ourselves in. So John chapter 17, beginning in verse 11, Jesus prays this. Now I am departing from the world, and they, he's referring to his followers, his specific followers in that time, but also us, are staying in this world. But I am coming to you, Jesus says. And basically, he tried to tell his followers that he repeatedly tried to tell them that he was not going to stay with them forever, that he was eventually going to leave, but they just couldn't understand that, where he was going and what was going to happen, why he was doing that. So continue on. Holy Father, you have given me your name. And he says, now protect them by the power of your name so that. And I always like to pause at this point anytime I'm talking about this because it's so important for us to to realize what he's actually going to address. To protect them from what? Because it's so easy for us to fill in the gap, right? As Americans, as modern Americans, as 
2022 American and, and specifically Christians, um, we're, we're, we think that God wants to protect us from certain things. Um, we think that God wants to maybe protect us from the other political party taking over, right? God, would you protect us from that other political party? Would you protect us from that candidate, that, that, uh, that corrupt, incompetent political candidate that seems like they're going to win, and so now I'm a little bit worried about that? Um, God, would you protect us from, you know, maybe uh, not political things, but transportation accidents or, you know, some sort of driving accident? Would you protect us from health problems? We sort of fill in the gap for what we think Jesus is praying for us to be protected from. And while Jesus is praying for protection, he's not praying for any of those things to be protected from. He's not praying for physical protection. He's praying for something so much bigger than that. He says, Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are united. And the thing that Jesus was most concerned about after his ministry was sort of ending and wrapping up was that his followers would be united because he knew the power of what would happen if they could stay united. And he also knew the danger of what would happen if they didn't stay united. He knew that if they stayed united, the world could change. But if they were divided and splintered, then they would just sort of stall out and things wouldn't work out. And so as Jesus followers, we have to take, again, a different posture from division. The natural posture, the political posture, is to divide. But the Christian political posture is unity. It's working together. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what that posture would look like in the next few weeks and months uh, leading up to this, or next few weeks, I should say, not months, <laughs> next few weeks in this series, we're going to talk about that posture as well. But secondly, I want to talk about the political tone. Uh, the natural political tone is what? We already said it's fear, right? It's all about fear. And here's actually a real headline that I read this week. Now, I'm not going to say which political party it was about because it was an opinion piece about the other political party. But really, to be honest, you're going to see this headline or you're going to read this headline with me. Um, you're, you could insert any of the political parties in this, um, in this headline. Okay, so here's what it says. This election is your best last hope to curb power-hungry Republican or Democrats extremism. You could really fill in the gap for either one of those, right? Let me read this again. This election is your best last hope to curb power-hungry Republican or Democrats' extremism. You fill in the gap, you know, whatever that is, right? And that just seems like it's just peddling fear, right? You're just peddling fear. This is your last best hope, right? After this, everything's going to end. The world's going to end if they get elected and that, they take over Congress and, and they become governor, they become mayor, they become whatever, right? They take over your city council. The world's going to basically end. This is your best last hope. And as Jesus followers, that should never be said about us, that our best last hope is some sort of election, right? Our voting block can somehow change this thing, and maybe it can, but that's not our hope, right? It's sort of drilling down to something that is inherently sometimes in our hearts that we do think that is our hope, that our politics and our election, our voting is our last hope. That this whole political game is just basically about fear, right? It's all about peddling fear. That they're coming for us. They're going to get us. We're losing. We can't lose. We can't lose power. So you need to give your money. You need to give your time. You need to volunteer. And you need to vote the way that we're telling you to vote or we're going to lose. And this could be sort of that, that fear of whatever the results of the election might be. This could be the fear of um, the prospect of, of who will take control and who will lead us, uh, you know, whether that's Congress again or whatever the, the issue might be or the, the election is. Um, this could also be the, the fear of the worst case scenario, right? That's usually what's peddled, the worst case scenario of what's going to happen in our country. Or maybe for some of you, this isn't political. This is about whatever is bringing you fear and anxiety in your life. That we sort of just lean into the fear and Jesus says, no, I don't want you to lean into the fear. 
that we don't have to be controlled by fear. Even, Jesus would say, when there is something to be afraid of, even when there's something to be fearful of. Because almost all fear is based on something happening to our bodies or our person. Maybe it's mental and not necessarily tangible. But fear is all based on that idea. And the thing is that Jesus would say that there's something more important and something bigger happening that you need to be reminded of. So he says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. He says, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. Let's just take it to the extreme. Maybe that party does want to actually kill you. Well, Jesus would say, even in that case, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body because he says they can't touch your soul. And this sort of gives us hopefully a different perspective on every political issue, every measure that we're going to vote on. Everything has a different view when you see it from that perspective. He says, fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Basically, he says, don't be afraid of, and then you can fill in the gap, right? You can put anything in there. Don't be afraid of those who vote differently than you. Because let's be honest, some of us are afraid of those who vote differently than us. Don't be afraid of the candidate who has a completely different foreign or domestic policy or has some sort of different economic view or, or just social views, whatever the issue is. Don't be afraid of that candidate. Don't be afraid of the Facebook comment section, the social media comment section from whatever the party of your opposite viewpoint is. Don't be afraid of the opposite political party taking control of anything. Don't be afraid of those who might change the hopes and dreams for our country, or might change the direction of our country. Because thankfully, Jesus provides us an alternative. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God, who can destroy both soul and body and hell. That God can actually protect your soul no matter what somebody does to your body, no matter what somebody does to who you are in this country as a citizen, non-citizen, whatever the case, no matter what they do to you, God protects your soul. He protects something more important than who you are in your body. Our bodies will die, obviously, but our souls are eternal, and God, thankfully, will take care of our souls for eternity. And then Paul would sort of pick up on this idea that Jesus talks about, and he talks about fear in this way. He says this in Romans chapter 8, and I am convinced that nothing you can insert, again, any political party, any candidate there, any measure, any, any uh, movement of the, the spectrum in Congress, whatever. And, and I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above and the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, if you'll allow me to sort of take some liberty in interpreting this or sort of translating this and add a few points to Paul's uh, list, neither liberals nor conservatives can separate us from the love of God. And you can also throw in moderates if you really feel that, that threatened by moderates as well, right? <laughs> They can't separate us from the love of God. And so we really don't have something to be afraid of in that sense, even though there is maybe some, some earthly fear that we can have because of what could happen. That whether they take away our religious freedoms, whether they abandon compassion for others, no thing and no one can separate us from the love of God. That following Jesus leads us to a place where our faith in God should overwhelm our fear, we've talked about that before, but every time we sort of need to be reminded of that when there's a new fear coming, right, or there, there's an old fear coming back, whatever the case is, that our faith in God can overwhelm our fear. And so the natural political tone is obviously all about fear, and the Christian political tone 
is about overcoming faith. It's not about us. It's about our faith in God, that God can overcome whatever the thing is. So whatever the, the fear-based thing that we have is in politics, we have an overcoming faith in a God who's overcoming any of those things. And then the other one that we talked about, the natural political posture is to divide. The Christian political posture is unity. And then as we sort of wrap up, this last one is um, that we're going to spend a, a last, our last few moments together about is the natural political approach is, again, to win at all costs. And I'll be honest, as an American, and I would say maybe this could also be a gender thing. I don't know. As a man, I also really like this. I'm very competitive. And maybe some of you are competitive, whether you're a man or a woman, what doesn't matter. But we're very competitive, especially, like I said, in this country, it seems like we're very competitive. And it can seem to be good to say that we're in it to win it. Like that's the whole purpose. We're all striving about winning. It's winning at all costs, right? And we sort of, in some ways, hope our sports teams will win at all costs and they will do everything but yet we also know that that's not good, right? We've seen with steroids, athletes using steroids, we're like, no, I don't want you to win at all costs. I don't want you to impact your future health because of that, right? Or we've seen in football, a concussion issue, right? And, and the mental problems and the, 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 the psychological problems that continue after their careers are over. Like, no, I don't really want you to win at all costs. And we should see that about ourselves as we look at politics and who we're willing to align ourselves with and who we're willing to support and endorse and, and what we're willing to do at all costs, that's not really what we should probably do. It might sound good initially to say, yeah, win at all costs, until you look at Jesus, until you look at the Gospels and you read Paul's writings and you realize that as un-American as it might sound, as, as, as strange as it might sound, as passive as it might sound, the church is not here to win. That's not the purpose of why we're here. We're not here especially to win an election, to sort of get our candidate in office. Because by every human measure, think about this, by every human measure, you could go money, you could go status, you could go job, job description, job title, whatever thing you want to use as a metric to determine winning. By every metric, our Savior did not win. If you just look at human standards, normal standards, he did not win. He died, even if you're just looking at life. He ended up dying. And he lost on purpose, but he had a purpose. So if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a part of this body, this one body that we're, content, we're supposed to be a part of, sort of working together, unified, we are called to follow his example. And he did not come here to win. That you and I are not in this to win this. We're in this for something else entirely. And when we allow our faith or sort of the direction of our spiritual life to go in a direction that's all about winning for our political party, we lose our influence. We lose our voice. We lose the very things that we're trying to keep by sort of trying to win, right? And most importantly, we lose our opportunity to share Jesus with other people. So um, 1 Corinthians, Paul would sort of talk about this, that there's this difference between the way Jesus lives and the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. The kingdoms of this world are very different from the kingdom that God and Jesus came to establish, this, this eternal king that Jesus was. And, and Paul sort of came down and he sort of uh, talked about that a little bit more. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, Though I am free and belong to no one, he would say. I, I don't belong to anyone. I have made myself a slave to everyone. And then he sort of gives us his win. Again, this, this idea that we sort of use, we co-opt to win as many people as possible. That, that Paul's goal was basically to help win other people, to help see the world differently, to, to see that God loves them, to see that Jesus came to die for them, to help them in this, this different thing that has nothing to do with politics in some ways. That basically Paul's strategy to win was to submit to and serve people as a way to influence them. 
which it just doesn't sound like that's a great strategy. If you're just looking at things of this world, you're going to submit to other people. You're not going to be the leader over people. You're going to submit to other people as a way to sort of influence them. You're going to serve them rather than them serving you as a way to sort of influence them because doesn't usually the leader influence the people they're serving? Like that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. You're going to serve the people that you're trying to, that are, that are leading you. And we might push back and say, like, Paul, that's not a way to, like, win any influence. That's not a way to do that. Like, you're just not going to do that. That's, that, that's not going to work for you. And that didn't really work for anybody. But then we look back at Jesus, right? And we see that Jesus is somehow really, in some ways, taking over the world in some senses, which Jesus is being talked about everywhere in the world today because he was actually successful in a different way than what the world might measure. Verse 20, Paul says, To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. He says again, so as to win those under the law. Verse 21, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. So he's basically saying that I appealed to a lot of different people, both sort of ends of the spectrum of a lot of different um, spectrums. I appealed to both sides of the spectrum. And he talks about this idea of God's law, or he's rather under Christ's law. Because remember, Christ and Jesus, it sort of identifies Jesus as king. That that word Christ identifies Jesus as a king. And when we say that, we're sort of acknowledging that he is our king. And so his rule, his law, is supposed to be over us if we're going to acknowledge him as our king. That this makes us accountable to Christ's law. Now, you might not be so sure, well, what is Christ's law? Well, that's very simple. That Christ's law is basically say that you are to love one another as God through Christ has loved you. That's what Christ's law is, to love one another as God through Christ has loved you. And so Paul says in, in sort of adjusting to different cultures and adjusting to different people and people on different sides of different spectrums, that I'm going to try to do my best to treat them that way, to, to, to win them over, to serve them, to be like Jesus in their life. That he would say, the law of Christ determines my posture, my tone, and my approach, that how I actually go about winning people to Jesus. That my posture, my tone, and my approach are very important to actually being able to do that. And so he says this, um, verse 21, to those not having law, I became like one not having law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. And so some of us might say, well, yeah, but Paul, you can't just sort of waffle. You just can't sort of be in this camp and then go to this camp and change your view and change your position and be with them and also say you're with them because those are enemies and you can't be with one or the other. You're just going to have to be an enemy of one or the other. You can't do that, Paul. You have to take a stand. You can't stand in the middle or you can't stand with both people. It's just not possible, Paul, to do that. But in some ways, he was taking a stand. Where we might push back and say, Paul, you didn't take a stand. He was taking a stand by his approach, again, by his tone, and by his, his a posture that was given to him by Jesus, that he's trying to emulate from Jesus. That not taking a side with a political party, uh, not taking a side of a political party over the directions that Jesus gave him. He was choosing to do that. That was what his, his decision was. He was taking his cues from Jesus, not from his political party. And then what comes next is something that I hope um, we could all say is sort of the direction of our lives, that we're trying to live this way, not just in our politics, but in every area of our life, what Paul says next. Verse 22, he says this, When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone. Wouldn't that be great to be said of us? You know, if we had some sort of, uh, you know, end of our lives and people were sort of saying what they reminded us. Yeah, he tried to find common ground 
with everyone. And maybe now, more than ever, we need people that are willing to try to find common ground with everyone. Because in some ways, that's exactly what Jesus came to do for us. He came to find common ground for everybody. He leveled the playing field. We're all sinners short of him, and so we all have that in level with him. And he loved us enough that he would come to die for us. Now, for some of you, um, this idea of finding common ground with people, it can seem a little daunting because maybe for our wiring, our temperament, our personality, it's a little bit not as natural as it is for some people, and that's okay. Um, but what I think he's trying to say is something that is applicable to everyone, whether that's easy or natural for us. That he's saying that basically he's learned, maybe this was natural, but he's also learned how to navigate relationships with people he had very little in common with. But somehow he was able to find common ground. And we might say, well, yeah, but Paul, I know that that, you know, like, I've done that for a season, and that just takes a lot of work. Like, that's just an extreme amount of work to find common ground with that group of people on either side of the political spectrum or in the middle, and I just don't understand. I'm never probably going to understand why they have their views and why that's the case and why they're voting that way. Like, why would you put in all that much effort if you're never going to fully understand or you're not going to be maybe aligned with them ever? Like, why would you put in all that effort? Well, he says it at the end of that statement. Let me read it again. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone. Here's why. Doing everything I can to save some. And when he says doing everything, I think you could insert a couple different things there. He's doing everything, which includes sometimes being misunderstood, right? That can happen. It can also mean you're left out at times. <laughs> doing everything means, you know, you allow yourself to be left out of conversations, and in Paul's case, which we don't really get too much, but Paul's case, that also meant doing everything meant he was going to be mistreated. For trying to save some, he was going to be mistreated by the other group of people, the, the enemies of that group of people. So doing everything I can to save some, he says in verse 23, wraps it up, I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Now, it's kind of actually surprising in some ways that Paul would, that what Paul wrote actually survived, you know, 2,000 years to get to us. Um, but I think part of the reason that maybe it survived was because of this idea. Because Paul was so willing to do whatever it took to share the good news of Jesus that it just left an impression on people. They're like, I got to keep this document. I got to save this aside. I got to share this around to other people. And so it kind of kept copying and getting passed on. But you got to think about this. The fact that we have anything from Paul 2,000 years later is kind of amazing. But maybe part of the reason is this very thing that Paul was so passionate. He prioritized this above anything else and any other uses of his time and his resources. He says, I do everything to spread the good news and to share in his blessings, to share in its blessings. Because Paul understood that the good news of Jesus is that Jesus has already won. We don't need to worry about winning something else necessarily, that we've already won because Jesus has already won. And so now I need to tell the world about that. So the natural political approach is to win at all costs, but the Christian political approach is to share Jesus at all costs. That that's our win. It's sort of the same in some ways. It's to win at all costs, but our win is very different from the political world. Our win is not about getting our candidate in office because that's not necessarily going to help share Jesus. That might, but it might not as well, right? It's usually going to be more about power and money and all those different things that, that politics sort of stirs up in us. But if we keep our focus on the approach of sharing Jesus as our goal, at all costs, we will win. So our main point for today is this. Christians have a different posture. We have a different tone. We have a different approach to winning 
than politicians. And we need to keep that in mind as we start, well, not really starting, because this political cycle just seems to seem to get longer and longer, right? It started a long time ago. But as we get ready for the election in about a month from today, as we get ready for that election, we need to remember that we have a different posture. We need to have a different posture. We need to have a different tone. We need to have a different approach because our win is different than the politicians. And so we need to handle things differently than the way the politicians and the political system handles it. That if your posture and tone and approach are just like your political party, that should be a big red flag in your life. Or maybe worse yet, if your posture and your tone and your approach are just like your political talking head, whatever news channel, whatever podcast, whatever thing you do, that maybe should, should be a little bit of a red flag because our posture, tone, and approach should be like Jesus, should be like the other Jesus followers in the New Testament. That our natural political posture, the natural political posture is to divide, but our posture as, as Christians is to unify and to work together with other people. The natural political tone is about fear, but the Christian political tone is about overcoming fear and, and having an overcoming faith. And the natural political approach is to win at all costs, but our approach as Jesus followers is to share Jesus at all costs. And if we do this, the great news is, if we actually do this, we win in a much bigger way than just some sort of election. We win in a bigger way than sort of changing the direction of our country politically. We win in a bigger way than sort of shifting some seats in Congress. We help impact the world and change people's eternities. And so let's not lose sight of that in this political season. Let's not lose sight of the real importance for us as Jesus followers. We should be involved, and we're going to talk about it. We should be involved in politics. But again, our approach and our tone and our, our posture should be very different.